Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week, we'll be taking a look back at SNL's December 12th, 1981 episode from its seventh season with host Bill Murray and musical guest, The Spinners. I'm John Murray, and with me this week is improv and sketch impresario, Dave Buckman. Dave has studied, directed, performed, and taught in many of the nation's premier sketch comedy haunts, including Chicago's Second City, I.O., and Annoyance Theatres, and is currently running Austin's Cold Town Theatre and Sketchfest. You can connect with Dave on Twitter, at Dave Buckman, and you can connect with me at snlpodcast.com. Enjoy this full-length, supporter-only version of this week's discussion. And if you like what you see, you can find all of our unabridged, ad-free video coverage of Season 46 exclusively on Patreon and Subscribestar slash SNL Podcast. It's our supporters who make this show possible, and we are so thankful to everyone who's already come on board. All right, enjoy. Dave, it is wonderful to see your beaming face. You too, buddy. You don't look... uh overly frostbitten i hope you didn't lose any toes last week no toes just a lot of groceries yeah. and uh a bit of my humanity as well yes. so yeah well when we have to resort to drinking our own urine it, it takes a little bit of our dignity with it i'm sure <laughs> um yeah so for anyone who doesn't know uh you're austin based which means you were in the epicenter of texas snowmageddon 2021 yep. yeah, uh sure was <laughs> yeah. Um, not that there was anything fun about it, but do you have any fun anecdotes that you want to share from your experience? Like what was it boots on the ground to see snow for like probably the first time in your life? No, I know uh, you're from well, Jersey, so you've seen I'm snow. From Jersey. Yeah. I've seen plenty of snow. I lived in Chicago for a long right. time, so I've seen snow, but I tell you, my body has definitely changed. Yes. Um, but uh, the, the problem is that Texas is not used to the snow. Right. And uh, so they just don't have the infrastructure. There's no, they don't have salt trucks. There's no one like coming to break up the ice after it freezes. Um, so mm-hmm. we were like living in a, we were living in a, in a refrigerator for, uh, for three days straight, 75 hours, no power, no food, no water. Um, you know, I made it out into the slush once a day to go get some food and come back. We're wearing socks and the bags and socks on our feet. So it was, it was intense, but, uh, we got through it. Um, but yeah, sorry to bring the show down. <laughs> no, no worries. You, you managed to avoid a Donner party situation. So we'll call that a win. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's get on to, uh, funner things here. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about the state of your theater and sketch fest going into 2021, because obviously right. COVID has thrown a big monkey wrench into everything. So what do you got cooking for 2021? Well, uh, you know, we're cold town theater is very much on the grid these days. You know, we're teaching mm-hmm. online classes, uh, doing online shows on Twitch and, uh, doing a lot of corporate, uh, uh, workshops, um, for diversity, inclusivity and equity, um, for uh, businesses as well through improv. Um, so that's kind of keeping us afloat for now. We're looking for a new space. Our theater space got um, uh, sold from under us since we couldn't afford to pay rent. Um, so we are out of there. We're looking for a new space for 2021, but we do have Austin Sketchfest. It's online this year on our Twitch channel. Um, and it's uh, coming up April 20th through the 24th. We've got some great headliners uh, coming to that show. We're excited about them. Uh, last year we had uh, James Adomi and, Anthony Tamanik and um, Jamie Loftus. Uh, and uh, so that was a great show. And we had a great weekend full of troops from UCB and Second City and IO sending in live shows and, um, and tape shows. So we're doing that again in April. Can you announce any headliners or are things still too much in flux right now? Well, we've got Meg Stalter. She's contracted. We just uh, agreed. Uh, she's a TikTok star. We're very excited about her. And we also just uh, got um, Atsuko Okatsuka. Oh, boy. Atsuko Okatsuka. Okatsuka. 
Atsuka. Okatsuka. She's an amazing uh, Japanese American stand-up uh, out in LA. She came out of bounds in Austin a couple of years ago, and just I just fell in love with her. She was fantastic, and uh, she's hosted a couple of our um, uh, Asian performers on her uh, show as well. So uh, we have a good relationship with her. And then I think we might be getting uh, Craig Kakowski of um, Drunk History and Kevin Pollack have a podcast as well. I think they might be joining yes. us as well. So we're still talking to them. But you can follow all that out at uh, ATX Sketchfest. Uh, or at cold town. Okay. Um, fantastic. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'll be looking forward to hear what else starts coming together as you firm up your lineup, but that's a pretty good start. That's going to be a good show. Yeah. Um, but it, it is all online. So it is like, what do people have to expect if they get a ticket for this? What's the process like to actually, you know, go, there's no ticket. It's, it's free to stream. We get some uh, city uh, grant money to help us put it up. So we are making it free to stream. We're asking for donations. We have a Patreon channel. Uh, for Cold Town to kind of keep the theater afloat. So if mm-hmm. you wanted to uh, join a Patreon for Cold Town, you can find a C-O-L-D-T-O-W-N-E. There's an E at the end of that. Uh, and uh, join our Patreon. And that would be the biggest way you can help us uh, keep afloat uh, for now until we have a new space and we have regular live shows again. Very good. Okay. Um, now, turning to our episode of the night. Uh, this was your selection. We were batting around potential ideas. You were really kind of locked into this era, the season six, season seven, you know, the big transition, uh, the second phase of SNL. Um, we ended up landing on the Bill Murray episode from the seventh season. Now, what, what was it about this that you felt like this was something you wanted to break down? Yeah. Well, I got Peacock. Um, uh, actually I got a Roku, which came with Peacock. Mm. And so I just started like, you know what, I'm just going to start at, uh, episode at season six. And just start like watching them back to back. Um, I didn't realize until a little into it that they took out, there's only half hour, 45 minute episodes. Right. They take out no, there's no musical guests, which kind of sucks. There's some really good musical guests that you miss out on and, mm-hmm. and maybe one or two sketches that come in under some rights issues as well. Um, so you're only getting about maybe half the episode, uh, on Peacock. But as I went through them, I started like w- trying to bring it because this is where the era I started watching every week. Um, I'm trying to figure out like, I wonder what my first episode was. And as I hit this Bill Murray episode, I realized this is it. This is the episode. This is, I remember everything from this sketch on, uh, <laughs> in the back of my mind. Um, and a light turned on, uh, that I was like, well, I think we were talking about doing the Tom Hanks, Keith Richards episode from right. the, uh, late eighties. But then this one just, this was my first episode and it, it's, it, and in a sea of just mediocre to tepid episodes, this one jumps out with energy and fun. Um, mostly from Bill Murray, uh, yeah. bringing everybody uh, up to his level, which was a great uh, thing to see. So I really sparked my interest and um, I really just wanted to uh, go deep dive because this also was Michael O'Donohue's last episode. He gets mm-hmm. fired after this episode as head writer and producer. So I think it's a very special moment in Silent Live history where it's definitely a break. It's the last of the old guard and right. the 80s um version of Silent Live kind of takes over uh officially uh after this episode. And you can kind of see the change going on Peacock and kind of seeing the lightness that is in the room now that Michael Donahue, <laughs> the Prince of Darkness, has left the building. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it really it really gets you. There's so many things going on underneath the scenes of this episode too. So I'm sure we'll talk about it. Yeah, let's not shy away from the meta because this was 
just coming out of a very tumultuous phase where they retooled and Dick Ebersol took over, but we're only now seven episodes into basically his reign. So the show's still finding its footing. They changed up a lot of their tradition, which always throws me when I watch this particular season, like how mm-hmm. much Dick Ebersol kind of wanted to pee on things and make it his. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot surrounding the show that is to me as interesting as just, you know, watching it and trying to look at it as a time capsule of the time and figure out why Gaddafi was such a big deal this particular week. So, uh, yeah, right. we, we're, we're going to run the gamut tonight and it's a stuffed show. They had lots of, lots of sketch fair, lots of performances. They threw in the whiff and poofs cause you know, apparently that's hip and edgy. Um, so yeah, we're just, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna break it all down and, uh, we probably don't need to introduce it anymore why don't we just jump right in let's jump right in let's do it for our cold open we get a quasi cold open they've been doing these you know sponsored by title cards in place of proper cold opens but i'm pretty sure this is the last one so i don't know if that had anything to do with michael o'donohue or not but i believe this was the last time we get uh, a title card this time they're goofing on the phone company for not really innovating but throwing money at them so that's Mm -hmm. that's how we jump into the show uh any you know wonderful insights on our faux cold open? Uh, no, I just think that it's very weird that we're still talking today about these giant communication <laughs> companies needing to be broken up. You know, back then it was the phone company was the only way to kind of have any kind of mass communication and keep in touch with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're still talking about that with Facebook and P- Parler and uh, you know Google. And we're st- we, I wonder if we're ever going to end this. Uh, <laughs> no this abusive system we're in of just like whoever controls how we communicate is always like kind of exploiting us anyway. So yeah, they've been, they've been hitting the phone, the phone company for some reason all season um, in these title cards. It was, uh, it's just an old, old reference to a, a, a perennial problem, I guess. Yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, yeah. I have no great insights. Uh, I'm glad <laughs> that this seemed like subversive and sticking it to the man at the time. Um, it feels kind of tame by comparison. Like this is a pretty, pretty gentle ribbing, uh, maybe by today's standards, but, uh, it got a big laugh. Like people seem to seem to dig it and, uh, it gets you into the show quicker, which means they can tack on an extra sketch. So, um, yep. there's a lot of reasons why I didn't hate this as much as I, you know, love the tradition of the show and really hate it when a show kicks off without the live from New York line. And no, no Don Pardo either. Right. Yeah. So again, it's just Dick Ebersol changing things for the sake of changing things. Um, yeah. I get that it's a production savvy move. Like this is way cheaper to produce than a whole big sprawling cold open. Um, but yeah, there's just something to be said about the tradition of it. So if I was going to knock it, it's just, why do you got to change something? If it ain't broken, don't, you know, don't, don't mess with a, a winning formula. But that aside, yeah, it gets us into the show pretty quick. Um, so moving right along, we get a monologue from Bill Murray and he just wants to tell you something about Santa Claus. <laughs> it's Bill Murray doing Bill Murray shtick. What, what'd you think of this? Well, it's fun because, you know, when he says at the top, instead of at the end of the monologue, we've got a great show for you tonight. You believe it. You believe mm-hmm. it because Bill Murray really believes that we have a great show. You can feel <laughs> his, he's up there. He's high on the show. He knows what's coming. And he's excited about it and he feels it and he feels the audience and they're excited to see him. He's excited to feel them and he feels very proud of the show in that moment. And it really kind of brings the energy up in the room. Um, and then the other point when he brings out Santa and Santa's like here for the night at Bill Murray's <laughs> request, which is a great concept, um, uh, is, uh, that line where he goes, uh, and I called, I called him up and Santa says, what time? And what do I wear? Right. Which is a line they've used a lot on that show. I think, um, Paul Schaefer uses it a lot. Uh, as um, as uh, Don Kirshner in the early uh, in season five, 
Um, but the fact that he's saying that about Santa and Santa's <laughs> saying, what do I wear? Which is so, it's so meta right. of a joke and so funny to think of like, why does Santa care? He's going to wear the same thing every time. So I just love that. Um, but my big thing about this sketch is who is that guy? Who is that guy that did all the old security guard? Um, yeah. Uh, walk ons with zero to one lines. Uh, throughout the eighties, um, he has, I, I did actually look this up because he has like 130 SNL credits. So you're right. He's like the, right. the extra Olympic champion. He's got a very, uh, generic name, but it's not coming to me, but I can find it here. If you just bear with me. So while I'm looking it up, I'm going to give a shout out to Ben Dossima, who has reviewed all of these classic episodes in fine detail. Mm-hmm. And he picks out stuff like that. So I'm just pulling up his page and. There you go. Andy Murphy. So yeah, Ben Dawson went to the rescue. Murphy. He has all the, those little tidbits and trivia that you could want for this era. So people should check out his blog, existential weightlifting. Cause that's where I go when I need to bone up on my <laughs> SNL lore. I don't have much to add to that. I think that this gets over just simply because of Bill Murray's enthusiasm. The fact that he comes across so sincere as this kind of pitch man hype man glad hand you know just yeah. schmoozer like he's just he's everybody's bud and and it's funny because it, it actually is sort of sincere because he is known to be kind of generous that way about building up the people around him and just you know being kind of a like a team guy in in this kind yeah. of material uh so it is just kind of funny to see them apply that a little tongue-in-cheek to santa claus who really doesn't need uh, you know anyone talking him up like he's santa claus because everybody <laughs> loves him so um I, I liked it. It was simple. It was straightforward and it, it just capitalized on what Bill Murray does so well. So yep, yeah, I, I can't help but, you know, just have some infectious enjoyment of seeing Bill Murray just come out, you know, glad to be there at a time when the show needed allies, you know, they needed some of the old guard to come back and endorse it and just let, let everyone know it's okay to embrace this new cast. So there's, there's a lot going on here too. Just him coming in and being yeah. gung ho rather than maybe feeling, you know, a little bit of weight over the show. Uh, he just removes all of that, clears it out. And I think that's probably why the show soars a little bit more than the rest of the season. Yeah. And he was one of those guys who was generous in coming back. Now, yeah. you know, Acre didn't come back for a long time. Belushi right. comes back in this season, in this season, uh, early on, but in the Halloween episode, but it doesn't say anything. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but he's, he'd already hosted once at this point, uh, in season six, mm-hmm. uh, to try to lift that cast's spirits as well. Of course, everybody gets fired right after that episode, but, <laughs> right. um, not his brother, uh, but so at least that. Not his brother, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I'm sure he's also very excited to play with his brother, right, As well in this episode, so yeah, Bill Murray. He's a he's a cool guy. And and honestly, if if we're gonna you know dig into meta and our history with the show, Bill Murray is the reason why I sought out SNL because he was a personality when I was a kid from the movies that I loved. And mm-hmm. you know, once you once you become a fan, you find out like where would he get his roots, and then you start seeking that out. Uh, sure. So the contribution that bill murray made to the show just in being a good ambassador a good sport i i think you you can't say enough about it because there's a right. i'm sure a whole generation of like ghostbuster kids that probably found snl just because of just how personable and fun he is to watch so, absolutely absolutely yeah. uh now getting into the show proper for our first sketch yes. tales of the unlikely chapter seven the libyan menace chronicles the efforts of three would-be presidential assassins what did you think of this? Well, it's a little all over the place. There's a lot of really fun things and a lot of really problematic things in the sketch, <laughs> okay. but I'll, I'll start with the positives. I love a full cast sketch. Mm-hmm. I love a sketch where we see the entire cast. I think everybody's in this at some, at some point. You might catch Fred Stoller, popular standup from the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. as an extra 
in that uh, early part of the scene. And the little things that Bill Murray is doing throughout the scene. There's like he has his cackle during a uh, yes, his a maniacal transition. laugh to change the scene, yeah, oh, to fade out. Yeah, it's so funny. It's mm-hmm. so funny that cackle. I watched it so many times at this point. It's one of my favorite parts of the episode. Is that little <laughs> cackle? <laughs> and then you, and something else you don't see very often is a three set sketch where. Um, you, very rarely do you see that anymore where we're going to like maybe they go back and forth mm-hmm. uh on some of these uh um talk shows these days but you rarely see like three full sets um of a, of a of a story like that yeah um those are the good things i think the bad things i would say the uh um i don't know if, you know obviously the problematic accents and uh um, <laughs> i don't think the writers or the actors really had a take beyond cia equals conspiracy theory and Middle East equals violent jihad. Sure. Um, I think that was kind of the whole uh, hot take they had <laughs> right. um, for th- the issue of terrorism um, and uh, bribery in the White House. Um, so they didn't really do much with that, which I think is a problematic with a lot of comedy in the uh, early 80s, late mm-hmm. 70s, early 80s. Until Reagan starts really like amping stuff up, then people have something to react to. But in those early 80s things, everybody was very complacent uh, and not really having any satirical takes and stuff Mm -hmm. yeah uh i'm right there with you i i found a lot to like but it it was kind of sprawling and the the way that they they kind of frame it in sort of this old-timey thriller sort of like with Mm -hmm. the with the musical stings and the the slow fades which they needed to give them time to get from set to set um all of that stuff i don't know if it it helped keep it lively but Mm -hmm. i at least had some fun with the idea that they had where the U S government is so like accommodating and, and just oblivious that these mm-hmm. guys could walk around, you know, a- attempting all this, you know, very blatantly that, you know, they're not, they're doing a terrible job of right. hiding. Like they're not very incognito. They're in their, you know, their whatever their robes and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the, the government is just more than happy to indulge them and just cater to them and take them wherever they want. It it's, I found it interesting to, to have mm-hmm. that kind of contrast. Like I, I like the idea of the CIA having a help desk where anyone can just go and get up to speed on, you know, clandestine operations, no ID needed, you know, just we're, we're here to help. We're the CIA. We're, we're your neighborhood, friendly exactly. neighborhood CIA. I liked those kind of ideas that were infused throughout it. Um, but I, I think this probably worked a lot better at the time when maybe people were more worked up about this issue and also, mm-hmm. you know, about the, you know, the bribery and corruption scandal that ends up being this guy's comeuppance at the end. There's, there's a lot more here that probably worked better at the time than us watching it, you know, whatever, 35 sure. years removed. Um, I but think still, we have a much more nuanced take on terrorism. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. 40 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I think there's a, a bit more to say on that topic than maybe they had back then. Um, but I got to give them high marks for the sets for just how ambitious this was. Like you said, how many people you had in the moving through the frame and how many people got you know, juicy characters that have some sort of accent, even, you know, even if through our, our modern lens, some of that stuff maybe is a little cringy. I just, I like seeing everyone doing the work, like Tony Rosada, someone that you don't see a whole lot of because he didn't have a long tenure on the show. It's cool to see him, you know, get a lot of material tonight. Yeah. Tony Rosado throughout the season is really trying to step up right. in many different ways. Sometimes he falls flat on his face a little too much, but he does some really good acting in the se- in the season. Mm-hmm. That um, it's a shame more people didn't uh, see more from him because he really he was he was swinging from the fences every night. Of course, self admittedly, he says he's he was on a lot of cocaine at the time, sure, uh, which <laughs> comes across in his performance a lot. But he was really he really went 
to bat every single time. He, yeah. he, he tried to hit a home run every time. So good on him. And, uh, you know, the person who's playing in the scene, Richard Allen, was an actual, was an actual person who's on the take in the White House. So right. they're trying to hit him, uh, uh, and getting a little, score a couple points that way. So right. good for them for trying, but I think it kind of falls flat in the satirical side. Okay. So let's keep rolling here. Cause we got a, a lot of show to get through here. Yep. We get another live sketch after the cancellation of his show, a manic Tom Snyder breaks with reality. Yes. So the, the big question that I want to pose to you, yes. Dan Aykroyd, Tom Snyder or Episcopal mm-hmm. Snyder. Do you have any thoughts? Yes, I do. Okay. And I think Piscopo's was better. Okay. I think Piscopo's was better. It was, it was more accurate. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, it sounded and felt a lot more like Tom Snyder than Aykroyd had become a caricature. I think at some point you can feel Aykroyd's presence in that performance more than you feel Piscopo's perform Piscopo in his performance. I think Piscopo brings a level of Tom Snyder here that was, I, I think it might be better than Aykroyd's okay. might, and funnier. It's a funnier sketch too. Yeah. Well, it's a manic version of him. So, you know, you can go place yeah. the character that way. Um, that's a hot take. So I'm way more familiar with Aykroyd's version because, you know, it's just, that was a, a perennial sketch. Right. Um, Are you familiar with Tom Snyder? Well, yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. He, he was following so, Letterman on CBS when I was young and, and okay. tuning in for Letterman during his second coming after he left NBC. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, I've, I've watched enough Tom Snyder to, to know what they're, they're reaching for here. I didn't realize that the late night wars had started 10 years before I realized they started. I didn't know there was a whole <laughs> thing with him when Letterman, you know, took over late night from his daytime stint. Um, so that was cool. That was new to me, but, um, yeah, no, I, I know, you know, I, I get the character. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with you that it was really strong. What I couldn't quite figure out was, did I like it because it was manic and he had, you know, his laugh just kind of went a few beats longer that just makes you feel he's a little more unhinged. Like, is it how interesting the state of the character is, or is it Piscopo's impression that was winning me over? I don't know, but like you, I, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I did too. I think he also, uh, had great support, which, uh, Aykroyd mm-hmm. usually doesn't get in those sure. sketches. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, he's usually, uh, tied in with a host playing right. themselves or doing a very loose impression of somebody else. Yeah. Um, uh, where, um, Tony Rosado and Kazarinski and Ebersol are like really good actors. Mm-hmm. So they're really kind of bringing a lot of support to the, uh, to, to the scene as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I think the thing about this scene that really gets me is I feel like this is one of two of Michael Donahue's goodbyes to America. Okay. Uh, that, that speech at the end that, um, Piscopo does is feels like a goodbye speech from O'Donohue, um, okay. through, through Piscopo, through Tom Snyder, uh, <laughs> yes. to America. I'll be uh, back you know, basically. I, right. Like you haven't seen I'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. He says, as long as there's geeks and weirdos and sideshow freaks. Yes. Okay. Uh, all Tom will be around to give them the national exposure they deserve. Very nice. Yeah, uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, my gears didn't, you know, go in that direction, but that's a, he says, he says, so I've made a few couple of mistakes. Is that any reason to fire me? I mean, it's, it's, you're right. You're right. It's, it's all right there for anyone that knows what's right happening behind the scenes. Here's how he wraps it up. And now from the, and now from the late, late shift at 30 rock. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being there. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Goodbye, nope. everyone. It's all there. It feels it. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, all yeah. there. That's, that's exactly what it is. Okay. So that's, that's even a little bit you know, more special knowing that, you know, someone was trying to be subversive and get, get something through that they, they felt passionate about. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So I, I like this. I didn't pick up on that subtext, but I liked it for what mm. it was. Um, so I thought this was kind of like the first solid win of the night that like, aside from sure. Bill Murray, just being charming. Um, I think this obviously worked better than our, our, you know, mystery thriller, epic opener that we just had. Yeah. This was a home run. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about our musical performances. The spinners with an assist from the house band perform a medley of then came you I'll be around and working my way back to you. Yes. What are we thinking? This was cathartic for me. This was, I cried. I cried. The spinners are my number three band of all time behind the stones and black crows. Mm. And uh, I'd never, and I've seen a lot of stones shows. I've seen a lot of black crows shows in person and online. I'd never seen the spinners perform. I just have all their albums and all their songs and just love them to death and know them all by heart. But seeing them perform for that extended period of time was it was breathtaking to me because I love them so much for so many different reasons. Um, and this to see them working their magic on a crowd, not in front of like the band, but like a, mm-hmm. just five guys with the microphones doing, doing choreography with those microphones, yeah. five different guys providing harmonies back up, each one taking a different lead. I love teamwork. I love precision. I love power, stage <laughs> presence, choreography, harmony, just everything about it works for me. And it was, it was, um, it was soul touching that okay. performance for me. And I'd never seen it before because yeah. um, even though I'd seen this episode, I did not remember anything before weekend update. Very good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you connected with it. Um, yeah. I, I was feeling very nostalgic growing up. I are, are the best local radio station we had out of Detroit was WOMC, the oldie station. And um, okay. obviously, you know, anything revolving around, you know, Motown or, or those kind of like, group sound um mm-hmm. that you know i i just absorbed that for you know the first 10 years of my life um so you know I, these these songs are all very you know familiar and and they warm my heart um i always get a little scared when a band comes on that's maybe about 10 to 15 years past their prime and you're wondering if they're going to pull it off. You know, you see there's a bit of a, maybe a bit of a beer gut going on. You're just wondering, is, is the energy, is the magic not going to be there? And they wowed me. They, sh- they didn't miss a beat. Like, even though, you know, they're looking a little worse for wear, yeah. uh, the, you know, the falsetto was sharp. The harmony was perfect. The, you know, the, the choreography was right on, even though these are simple shuffles they're doing. It's, it, it, it still said, Hey, you guys got it. You know, you, yeah. you haven't missed a beat. So, um, yeah, I'll give them high marks. I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then Bill Murray's favorite band too. At the same mm-hmm. time, you can feel it when he introduces them, he's yes. excited. He's yeah. on record as saying how much he loves the spinners. So yeah. he, he booked them for this episode. It was a gift to him. It was a gift to yep. himself. Um, yep. Hey, if you're Bill Murray, you can, you can certainly, uh, you know, pull a few sure. strings. If, if you're going to come back and grace the show, you get the musical performance you want. Um, it was great. yeah, no, this was, was fun and, uh, just a, a good energy at this point in the show. I, I just, right. I thought it, it made a lot of sense and uh, was a good booking. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that they, you know, could still pull off the performance and, and everything yeah. was just sounding crystal clear. So yeah, good. Awesome. Moving right along. Father Guido Sarducci for MX5 tampons. Yes. <laughs> what would you make of this? It's so funny. I love Father Guido Sarducci so much. I had a, his album growing up. His, his, I had a cassette, his cassette that I would listen to my dad's car all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love how funny he is and his takes on everything. Um, this was, of course, a, um, a parody of a um, Brenda Vaccara um, commercial for tampons, mm-hmm. which is very taboo at the time. 
do a tampon commercial and have a star do a tampon commercial. So it makes sense. It's a funny parody to who, who else would be doing who's the, who's the lace person you would expect right. to be yeah. doing an advert tampons. Certainly a guy, certainly a priest. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Father Guido Sarducci. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, but when I was uh, doing a little research for the show, this is his, he, he did, he did 31 appearances on Saturday Night Live. He's by far a, the most of any recurring character. Mm-hmm. That character's been on Laughing. That character's been on Fridays. That character's been on Smothers Brothers. Mm-hmm. He trans. He's he's like the Detective Munch of sketch comedy, Father Guido <laughs> sure. Sarducci. Um, and I just love him so much. And this is very sweet. Just like a quick, fun, silly idea. Right. Um, it it's 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 a minute long, and it's 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 a nice piece of writing. Yep. Yeah, a minute was just about perfect for this. Uh, I liked it too. I w- I wasn't thinking of it in terms of like who's the worst pitch man. It'd be like a male priest, like who, who just should not be able to speak to this particular topic. Right. But there, there's something charming about how father Guido Sarducci is kind of like the no nonsense priest. Like he's street smart, you know, he's got, he's a little world weary. And so like, he just like says it, he, you know, he, he, yeah. he, he there's a lot of truth, you know, in what he has to say. And, and he, he's not a squeamish kind of a, you know, character. Mm-hmm. So he's hip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's your buddy priest. So, there was something that just made sense that he would have no qualms about hawking any product like that as, as a vehicle for the character to just do what he does. Um, I thought made sense. Cause there's a, there's a part in this where he kind of has to take some shots at all the other companies and you know, well, they say mm-hmm. you can go swimming in theirs or whatever, but a trampoline, like really? Yes. Like he, it's almost like he believes in the product. And I just find that really, really funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he, he his stock and trade is, products to sell he's always trying to make a right, buck right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. but it's never you know it's never like malicious or like conniving he's always like look mm-hmm. here's a product i believe in yeah uh, i think this is gonna help your soul and your salvation and my pocketbook right. so no one yeah. no one gets hurt here <laughs> yeah no this this was fun this was a lot of fun and it's not the only time we see the the good father this evening um right so let's uh let's jump into snl news break Again, let's just change things for the sake of changing them because we know yep. that it's going to annoy John in 30 years. Um, <laughs> Brian Doyle Murray, you know, at least he's a familiar face at the desk. Um, for his opening salvo, he goes all in on the Gaddafi name spelling controversy. What would yes. you think about uh, what Brian Doyle Murray was bringing to the desk? I, I love Brian Doyle Murray uh, as an actor. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. I don't think he was great at the update desk. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so that whole Gaddafi spelling, it's, it, it's funny, but it takes way too long and it's so easy, it's, mm-hmm. but it's like he, he started doing his own desk pieces, I think, cause he knew somebody knew that just it, update wasn't working. They had right. him by himself. They had him with Mary Gross. They had him, um, with Christine Ebersole. They had him by himself again. And I don't think it works when the, um, when the anchor does their own desk piece. I think didn't That's Michael Trade, Michael Trade tried that. Yeah, uh, a season or two ago, and it, it bombed. <laughs> now, yep. It was a funny concept that it bombed because it's like, no, that's not what we want. You, if you want to do that, get off, the, give it to somebody else, <laughs> right. or get off the desk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Uh. So, as silly as that got, um, I don't think it was a great fit for Brian Doyle Murray behind that update desk. I don't know who else they would have had do it. Um, mm-hmm. I do like him so much, and I do like watching him do things all the time. Um, but uh, yeah rough <laughs> see now yeah no that, that's fair i think maybe the reason why he was as much of a mainstay as you had during this season at the desk um was probably just because 
he had a bit of that newscaster presence. Sure. That's not to say that he could turn the, the comedic twist on it very well, but he does, you know, I believe him as a, as a newscaster and maybe they were just looking superficially at his presence at the desk as opposed to just how well he could get the joke over. Um, so yeah, there was something that just wasn't clicking this whole season. And maybe it's just the writing. I would have buyed him Mm. as, as a, as an, as a, any kind of news anchor for sure. He's got the, Mm. the the voice, he's got the presence, he's got the gravitas. Um, but the writing was just not, not great. Yeah. Now I was watching this outing of SNL news break and I was trying to, contrast it with what i remember from the rest of the season Mm -hmm. and it seems to me that as much as this isn't you know anyone's uh, favorite era for the fake news um i felt like his performance was probably as good as it ever got during this and i know that's not (laughs) saying much but i i feel like because there were some nights where it was just so fumbly and like people were just missing their cues and just talking past each other it was just a hot mess and um yeah. And sometimes it wasn't just that maybe the writing was a little weak. Sometimes he would, you know, just kill his own joke just in the delivery. And so yeah. I felt like this was competent and maybe the best we were going to see, you know, during this, this phase of the show. I'd say it's a six out of 10. That's as high as he got. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And that's exactly how I feel. I feel like this is the best of what you're going to see. And that isn't necessarily saying much, but yes. we had a couple interesting features that maybe yes. would be, uh, Newsbreak saving grace. So let's talk about Joe Piscopo's Saturday night sports spotlight on Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I, I, you know, at this point, Piscopo is doing this sports thing at every episode, every single episode they throw to him because it kills and it's high energy. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how he can, how he can get the audience back applauding and cheering with literally 20 word desk up, 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 yeah. uh, update desk pieces. So, um, this is a great, this is probably one of the best versions of this one because not only do we get Joe Piscopo live Saturday night sports, we get young Joe Piscopo, right. uh, and NBC sports and we get young Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay and old Muhammad Ali. Right. Uh, so it was, it was a brilliant concept. I love when Joe Piscopo throws to himself as the younger one and that first <laughs> pop of him is wide eyed and bushy tailed yeah. in black and white. Uh, Joe Piscopo yeah. it is such a funny meta joke anybody that's been watching and been a joe piscopo fan up until that point and uh, at that point i don't know who who wouldn't be because he was clearly a standout of the cast right uh yeah no he was he was doing yeoman's work um this was a lot of fun and you're right when they throw to him not only have they got him done up in the like hey there swell chap like the old the old timey version of him which is just funny yeah. but he also brings his voice up yes. a little bit the, yes. the younger version of him isn't quite as as growly and i'm like well there's, you know, a little bit of performance that nobody was asking for, but it works so well. Um, and, and I then I, I, I'm watching this and I'm thinking about how competently he goes through that, you know, really fast paced dialogue, those like staccato words. And just, he yeah. has the, 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 the sportscaster delivery. And I'm thinking if he wasn't such an asset in the sketch fair, maybe he should have been the one anchoring the desk. Cause you know, maybe, maybe he could have made hay a, a little bit better. Um, but nonetheless, this was a great vehicle for him. Obviously they, they drove it into the ground, but, uh, it, this was fun and not just for Piscopo's part, but, um, Muhammad Ali, pretty darn yeah. convincing. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. I mean, this is something Billy Crystal doesn't even do for three or four years later doing, right. can do both, um, uh, young Ali and old Ali. And it's a mm. really good impression. I mean, it, it, yeah, I don't know if any Murphy had been doing any impressions up until that point. Um, uh, but this is certainly him like master of voice. 
and uh, yes. uh, kind of a precursor to his um, uh, coming to America and uh, Dr. Doolittle uh, yeah. uh, playing multiple uh, um, characters with uh, prosthetics and mm-hmm. uh, makeup. So good for him. It's fantastic. And it's peak. Uh, uh, yeah. A little hidden gem of Eddie Murphy's this, this piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I had to do a double take for uh current day Muhammad Ali or older, whatever the, the final Muhammad Ali, because yeah. I wasn't convinced it was Eddie Murphy. It, Me it was, either. he was, he was so lost in the character and the prosthetic was so good that I'm like, it was, was there a writer or something that I didn't know about that they just thought would work as old Ali, but no, that was, that was him. And he, he did something with his tongue under his lip, like, like this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to just, there was something about what he was doing that, that was so, so spot on. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just, I loved it. I loved the, the jumping back and forth through time. I, I thought, I thought this was a, a show highlight personally. So yeah, for sure. Um, how about Mary Gross, woman on the street, getting children's perspectives on the holiday season? The other show highlight for me. This yeah. was, this was, I think my first sketch. This was, okay. I think my parents showed this to me. I think they must have watched it, taped it. One of my parents were one of the first people to have those top-loading VCRs. So mm-hmm. I grew up with a bunch of SNLs from um, seasons one through six uh, on my VCRs. Just I, I just watch those anytime. But this one, I think my parents showed this to me. Because it featured not only kids my age at that point, I was 10 years old, um, mm. but also um, Seth Green is one of these kids. Yes, the very first one in the red hat. My grandmother had taught Seth Green uh, uh, as, as an art student um, oh. before he got famous. So he, we knew him. And so it's like, oh, here's this kid that you know. He's on the show and he's being funny. Um, <laughs> so I think it, this, this scene for me, just it hooked me. I think um, a perfect example of representation is real. Uh, because I saw myself as those 10 year old kids and said, I want to do that. I want to yeah. be funny on TV like those kids. Um, so yeah, it really, this it was beautiful. And I think it's very, very funny looking back on it now. Um, it was funny to me as a 10 year old. It's even funny to me now as a 49 year old. So it's, you know, yeah, no, I, I love, um, illuminating the various aspects of your origin story. I think that's <laughs> pretty cool. Um, yeah, th- this was a lot of fun. Anytime you put something, out of place in a kid's mouth, like, yes. um, like get them to use dialogue. That's just too world weary or too grown up or just whatever acerbic, uh, that always plays. I, I think that's so much fun. And you know, the, I think the show understands that this is a, a really easy win. And the, it, there's so many holiday cliches that when you hear them come mm-hmm. out of a kid's mouth, you're like, I've said that exact same thing. And yes, it is that ridiculous. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I didn't connect with it in that it somehow, you know, set my life on a, a different path the way that it did for you. But I still thought this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Very good. Okay. Back half of the show. We get a live sketch. Tonight's Brooke Shields designer fairy tale tells the story of Ralph Lauren's latest design triumph. <laughs> lots, un- lots to unpack here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with Brooke Shields. Um, obviously those Jordache <laughs> commercials where they're sexualizing a teenager, right. <laughs> uh, fits in with this frame of a fairy tale being read. Um, uh, I get like the Libyans in that first sketch. Um, a lot of, uh, <laughs> stereotypical gay voices. Um, right. well, well acted. Uh, I love that it's another full cast sketch minus Ebersol and it's cute for Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I, uh, Eddie Murphy going overboard with that stereotype of obviously no one 
this whole season is rife with homophobia and racist humor. It's pretty, pretty upsetting if, and misogynist humor. It, it's, it's rough. It's rough to watch from a comedy standpoint from 21st century um, values. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the story is cute. The elf and the shoemakers come to life, but it's Ralph Lauren in the, in the, in the fall line. So it was, for me, it felt like a lot of nonsense, um, a way to tie up a lot of airtime. <laughs> uh, with a Christmas, wrapped around a Christmas theme and sure. wrapped even farther around a Brooke Shields jeans parody. Right. There's just right, right. A, it's a lot going on here. Um, I can appreciate the full cast sketch. I can appreciate that it's Christmas time, um, but I just solid C minus for me. <laughs> okay. Um, my first thought was uh, Mary Gross as Brooke Shields. I thought she did a good job with that, um, mm-hmm. but. I couldn't help but think that Catherine O'Hara was supposed to be in the cast this season. Yes. And she kind of has the quintessential comedic take on Brooke Shields from her SCTV days. Oh. And so I was just, it, it, this has nothing to do with the show, but I was just sure. thinking, oh, well, there's, there's an alternate reality where uh, these Brooke Shields goofs would have been done by Catherine O'Hara if Michael O'Donohue hadn't scared her away before right. she even got on air. Um, so yeah, just uh, interesting, you know, what could have been in, in an alternate reality. Um, what we got, you're right. Like obviously through today's lens, there's a lot that would be problematic. I, I try my best to look at these the way that I'm assuming people would have looked at them at the time and just understand that, okay, if, if this isn't a liability for the sketch, the way it would be today, mm-hmm. is there merit in the writing? Is it at least smart in some way? Is it saying anything too clever? And, um, there wasn't a whole lot to go around here. Yeah. There was fun costumes. Um, uh, I, I get that because this would be a little bit more i'm not going to say taboo but there would be something a little more salacious about peeking in on like gay runway models and ralph lauren and you know bill murray's kind of given eyes to eddie murphy at one point like there's 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 stuff here that i think a more uh, a a less acclimatized to that culture people or society would uh, there there's there's something a little more risque about it that was probably amusing but that doesn't mean that that's anything that we should be applying at the same time so uh, i just i don't know what to say about it other than i think it was a middle of the road sketch at best and it probably got more mileage at the time just because of it feeling a little risque you know to that culture but yeah Yeah. i I think the reason bill murray is giving eddie murphy eyes is because Eddie Murphy is peeling yes, pieces of yep. Muhammad Ali's chin off his chin right. in the middle of the sketch. So every time the camera's not on him, Eddie Murphy's like furiously yeah, yeah. picking things off of his face uh, and trying to hide it. So you can see him trying to hide at the top of the sketch and him catching Bill Murray catching yeah. in the corner of his eye. <laughs> yeah, that's some some famous lore from this episode. And you're right because he has to he has a handful of goo at one point, so he can't really like. <sighs> act the way that he was expecting to because he's got all this prosthetic yeah. stuff um yeah that could be part of it but there I, i'm pretty sure bill murray blows someone like a kiss at some point like just as they're leaving like like see a babe or something like that like there was there was something just sort of like a, a, a an effeminate little gesture yeah. that he gives which i think probably would stick out way more in the early 80s than it would sure. today and probably when middle america was still watching snl which i, I just don't i don't think that snl's audience today would would blink at something like that so uh right. yeah this was a sketch that is a product of its time and you know can probably just stay there <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my hot take anyways okay so something that snl did in its early days um 
we get a performance from comedic juggler Michael Davis. Yes. Yeah. When it was still more of a, a variety fair, you know, occasionally they'd bring in people like this. They brought in a uh, Harry Night Court Harry. What's his last name? Harry Anderson. And- Anderson. Yeah. Harry Anderson. Uh, I remember him from the first few seasons. And uh, yeah, it seems like every season they have one or two people that they kind of like that they bring yeah. in a, you know, a few times. Um, so this was like kind of Michael Davis's heyday. Uh, did you want to see this in, in a show that was already particularly stuffed? I'll tell you, not not for the sixth time this season. Uh, right. I, I'm I'm kind of done with Michael Davis by this point. Uh, if you're watching straight through, uh, since he, uh, he there's nothing copyrighty about his stuff. He's on every single yes. one of these. <laughs> takes up yep, a significant chunk of the Peacock episodes. So he, a lot of Michael right. Davis stuff. But so it's funny that you see, say the word safe because I think for me, um, I'm I'm like I'm like I'm trying to understand why they give him so much airtime that season, right? Um, I think. It comes from this edict that they were trying to be, and they even say it at the opening. Instead of live from New York, they have the announcers say from the most dangerous most city dangerous in America. Yeah, right. In America, instead of live from New York. Um, so I think mm-hmm. there's this, this edict uh, coming down to be more dangerous, right? To to have more dangerous comedy, which I think why Michael O'Donoghue got the gig that he got because he was going to bring the dangerous, and he was the dangerous. Uh, uh, dark mind, right? And so, what do they get? Well, they get to to uh, get that d- up the <laughs> danger level. They get a juggler, a dangerous juggler, yeah. and that's it. That's as far as they got on that. On that, uh, so um, they had this one guy who was also a dangerous stand-up. I guess I don't know if you saw uh, this guy in a raincoat. I forget what his name was. He does try to do some weird interactive work with the audience in a different episode. And he was, I understand yeah. half the things he was, he's coke to the gills, coke to the gills, sure. this guy. Um, but that's the kind of danger they were trying to do. Um, there's another sketch later on that we'll talk about. That's also in that kind of dangerous mm-hmm. world that is not actually dangerous. Uh, right. E- even for then, I don't know what they thought dangerous was or what dangerous comedy is or why comedy has to be dangerous at all um, for it to work. But um, clearly Michael Davis is milk toast at best. Uh, you know, nice performer, nice guy, seems like, but um, I, I don't need to see anywhere Michael Davis for the rest of my life. I'm good. Sure. Okay. Um, my my hunch, my headcanon, I have nothing to yes. base this on other than my headcanon. I love headcanon. Yeah. Go. Um, <laughs> my hunch is that the show probably had a handful of local acts that they knew, okay, you've got a 40-minute act that you're performing at some theater five minutes yep. away. Great chop it up into 20 little pieces and anytime we're coming up short on the rundown, get your ass down to the studio. We might be able to make time for you in the back half. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where these sort of things come from. Cause obviously like, even if he was like the, the most fantastic comedic juggler in the world, you would think that they would have him on once and say, okay, give us your best three bits and put them into a two minute piece and really wow the audience. But the fact that it was just like, you know, we've got, a minute and a half till commercial go do something like yeah. it, it feels like like he's just a safety to have around for that i right. think maybe because the show was still finding itself and figuring out how to really handle their rundown as as they're reinventing some formats and just there, there's still a lot of you know chaos in the production i think they just needed those that safety net and i think that's probably why we saw so much of that's my theory anyways yeah, but I wouldn't find with Michael Davis once or twice. But you know, the uh, mm. later later seasons they have Jeff Stilson on, they have uh, Kinnison right. on to do some stand up. You know, um, and those are irreverent stand ups. And kind of, yes. I'd rather I'd rather they do irreverent than um, mm. faux dangerous. Right. If the mandate was danger, then yes, there's a lot of comedians that they could have called up if yep. they really wanted to. You know, freak out the censors. Um, obviously, that's 
not what this was. I don't, uh, we can speculate all day, but we got a little bit of juggling and moving right along to uh, Father Guido Sarducci, who is back and he's also psychic. What do you think of this? He's doing predictions, you know, he's doing predictions. And we're going to look at his predictions from 81 to what they were and how they fanned out. And we're going to hear some (laughs) stuff from 82. And this is just, this is classic, classic Sarducci. Very funny. Just a perfect example of how slow and comfortable this character is. He's just so relaxed and hip for, for its time. Very relaxed, very hip, even hip for now, I think. Um, and it's very, reminds me of like the, um, this, this combination with him and Bill Murray. It's like the 2000 year old man. It's like, there's some solid, you can improvise with like the, this loose list of jokes and punchlines. They know they're going to land on, but other than that, it's just a conversation. And Bill yeah. Murray also is very loose and comfortable playing the Carl, Carl Reiner of that mm-hmm. relationship and just setting him up. And it's just a wonderful, example of perfect sarducci i went after this episode i went and uh uh, went to youtube and there's a link you can find of uh, both of his comedy albums back to back on youtube and they're just a joy to listen to again yeah highly Uh, recommended yes uh i i agree this was a lot of fun you you my hot take these are two guys that play off each other great you know they're 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 casual their looseness the just how organically they kind of yeah you know, pick up each other's beats was uh, a joy to watch and fun. The f- fun that every time one of his predictions misfires, he's got a really casual excuse. Like, you know, yes. like I'm, I'm, what's he say? He's like, I'm just the conduit or something like that. Like, he's just, like, th- these things just come to me. I don't, you know, like take them for what they are. Like, I take no responsibility for it. Like, there's just, there's something so kind of just uh, aloof and nonchalant about it that is yeah. fun. And the, the fact that he would be like, okay, well, none of those panned out but here's what I got for the coming year. Like I'm going to just set myself up for failure again. I don't know. Uh, it was fun. Enjoyed it. I'd love to see him do one more update before, you know, he's, he's 75. He lives in California. Don mm-hmm. Novello, where are you? Get back to the update desk one more time, please. That, that would be lovely. I have a feeling that 90% of SNL's audience would have no idea what they're looking at. If, if but that that's happens. the best, that's the best part about that character because it, it's not about that. His character is about, what is happening in the world and how he can make a buck off of it um, sure. and how he, you can, he can offer you salvation in the process. So I think there's, and I'm sure the Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic church could use a good spokesman right now. And I, I think sure. uh, Sarducci would be uh, a great, uh, we need his voice right now. Now that Carlin's gone, we need Sarducci. All right. We will put that wish out into the ether and we'll, we'll see what happens. If anyone at the show is listening by all means, pitch that next Monday. Um, <laughs> okay. What else we got here? So O'Donohue's magnum opus at home with the psychos, the patriarch of a family of psychos sees financial opportunity in the coming nuclear apocalypse. Mm. So this is O'Donohue's <laughs> second swan song. Goodbye to America. Yes. I think this is the, this is, I mean, definitely this is one of the weirdest sketches ever on Saturday Night live, uh, you know, anger revolutionary. Um, this, I remember specifically this sketch, frightening me as a child i was so scared i could not i could not watch it and i did not even remember the sketch until it viscerally hit me in the face with um christine ebersold's mohawk at the top and the shotgun and i was like oh my god i remember being traumatized by the sketch <laughs> which is weird because of how much i love this episode and then how much i hated watching this sketch uh i was scared of it so um mm-hmm. it's weird it's definitely what michael o'donohue thought absurd comedy was or punk comedy um ethos and it it you know like most things that o'donohue tries to do if it's not mean-spirited then it's just weird 
on purpose. Um, so there's a lot I didn't like about the sketch. And then, but then now I'm watching it more and more over and over for this in preparation for this podcast. I can see what it is for what it is. And it's just weirdness for weird sake and just trying to mm-hmm. shock the audience. Um, but it never really does shock the audience. I think it's, there's, there's no humor behind the shock. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, yeah. Um, but it ends with one of those classic Bill Murray inspirational speeches that he was yes. his stock and trade from meatballs and stripes. Right. He tries to get the troops together. So for me, yep. I, I love that moment. I love the moment when he, Christine Eversol shoots him for the second time and he'll say, what's, what's, what's gotten into you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Like uh, this is just a, a casual way that she communicates that she's not entirely pleased with him. Yes, you know, like exactly. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so those are cute little moments, but everything else about the scene is just completely bizarro and uh, flat 40 years on. Yeah. Watching this sketch made me realize that I don't like angry humor. Like I don't like watching people yell, even if there's some joke underpinning it. And there's a reason unless it's like John Candy and Steve Martin. Uh, I, there's very few people that I can just see yelling, yelling at each other where I think I'm having fun watching just the, the bickering and the, the vitriol and the, you know, um, it, it just puts me off for some reason. Um, Yeah. so in, in this case, I, it's not like I like the, the characters or I had some sort of, um, understanding of them going into it where if they're going to just start getting caustic with each other, I understand the game. I understand why, what's going on and, and why everybody is just so hard to watch it just becomes very grating very quickly and yeah. um and and i think that's just where it lost me i i think there was there was an interesting idea in that you know he's he's a he's a shyster he's always looking for his his next scam and he's figured out that that he's going to corner the market on uh you know orifice paraphernalia like i that's that is weird and interesting but it was just surrounded by so much noise that i, I couldn't invest absurd on top of absurd on top of absurd on top of absurd mm-hmm. on top of absurd so it becomes like peas in a pod sketch uh you know you have the blind ballerina who french kisses her dad the suicide right. bomber's terrorist son with conspiracy theories they all live next to a leaky nuclear power plant the mom's got a mohawk all that just it's just like and then doyle murray comes in and tells them of the nuclear the meltdown that's doom, happened, yeah, yeah, the impending yeah. doom. And um, it's, it's, it just doesn't go anywhere uh, yeah. until that it, it just, and then how do we get out of this? Mm, Bill Murray, write One of his inspirational speeches, yeah. you know, um, which is up there as far as those inspirational speeches. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just as good as the one in meatballs or the one in stripes for sure. The one thing that this sketch says loud and clear is that Bill Murray came to play. Like he's not even a sketch like this, right. that I'm sure deep down, he kind of knows, Ugh, I, I don't know if this is going to work. He's going to invest yeah. and, and put everything he can into it. So he tried his yeah. best to put it over. That's for sure. This sketch reminds me of that thing when Jordan Peele writes, get out. He says, I wrote this. I wrote the movie that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. This is the sketch that Michael O'Donoghue wanted yeah. to see. Yeah. Uh, and l- much like most of what Michael O'Donoghue writes, it didn't agree with me. Yeah. It felt very indulgent. And you, yeah. his voice is is there, uh, not for the audience's sake, but you're right, for his own sake. Okay, well, let's get off that. Let's talk about our next live sketch. A bum is given a festive Christmas lesson in trickle-down economics. Yes. What do you think of this? Supply, supply side Christmas. This was great. Yes. Yeah. This was great. Piscopo and Eversol have great voices. They're a good comedy team. They were mm-hmm. teamed up earlier in the CIA office, and they they work really well together and on uh, the Tom Snyder-Rona Barrett feud. Yep. Um, you know, Eddie is in the scene. He kind of 
plays it for laughs when he sings. I don't know exactly right. what he was doing. He seemed like he was like, I don't know how to sing, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get a laugh instead. But he can sing, so I don't maybe he's just nervous. Twenty year old Eddie Murphy, nervous. No, um, I I think he was intentionally making his voice crack or just do something a little little weird to yeah. man, steal the scene a bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then uh yeah. Bill Murray doing his his kind of a mix of Nick the Lounge singer and his Caddyshack right. Hobo character. Um, you know, he can sing, but I think he kind of needs he's he's a very limited range. I, I just watched uh, On the Rocks, uh his movie on Apple TV, and he has a scene where he sings, and in the credits it's music uh Bill Murray's musical supervisor, Paul Schaefer. So he even brought in Paul Schaefer to help him sing in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um so I think he, you know, he, he's got a very uh limited range, but he can carry a tune. Sure. Um but the scene itself is a very smart song about yeah, the economic is. priorities that were shifting in the country that Reagan represented. Um and very in tune and this is this is this was the hot take about this is the satirical hot take that I think um at home with the psychos or it came from beyond was trying to lift itself up to but didn't really have right. anything to say about those particular issues. Um but this was great and I applaud anybody whoever wrote this and designed the sketch so good on you mystery writer. <laughs> uh no, this is brilliant. You're absolutely right. Perfect way to frame it in mm-hmm. having a bum who doesn't need a treatise on long-term financial stability. He needs a meal. And right. so making him the obvious visual representation of what you are trying to convey in this sketch, yeah. uh, I think is just perfect. You know, it, it just, it, it makes the, the joke and, and the lyrics so much stronger to see the you know exactly why it doesn't hold up in this particular situation you know a, a, a guy needs a meal he's asking for a handout and you're telling him well no no if if we just enjoy our prosperity eventually you know eventually. maybe you know something w- good will happen and he's thinking well that's great if i make it through the night that's a that's pretty potent as far as as actually having something to say with a sketch and then just backing it up with something catchy as hell with really smart lyrics and pulling in all of those um you know the the economic jargon that goes along with it they they really created good lyrics to support you know the the whole idea of the sketch so end to end really strong really really liked it i thought this was maybe the smartest material of the night for sure for sure now how about the whiff and poofs the Yale Whiffenpoofs. So they do a, a medley of the Whiffenpoof song because they're the Whiffenpoofs. And then Boar's Head Carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. And then they go out on Jingle Bells accompanied by the SNL cast. And for some reason, they decided they needed to do the the whatever, the pitch bender on them and turn them all into chipmunks. So uh, this performance kind of it runs the gamut. We even get some overlaid gags with their SAT scores. So what did you think of this? Yeah, this is another thing that SNL doesn't do anymore, which is not pop related musical guests. Yes. I I can I can think of I maybe count them on uh in the rec- in the last 20 years them doing anybody that's not a pop star um or rock star or country star whoever's at the top of the show. you know right. I think maybe maybe Pavarotti uh maybe Leon Russell um but certainly uh um not anything like this. Yeah. Uh of course it's Christmas and you have uh, this powerful these powerful Christmas songs. And then you mix that with the jingle bells with the cast, which is very reminiscent of that uh, first episode, uh, the first season Christmas with the cast doing um, winter uh, wonderland, winter wonderland, which is a great, which is a great one. They play that every year yeah. at Christmas. I don't know 
they, they could do this one too. I don't know why they don't do this one too. Um, <laughs> Uh, at that time but you know uh at first you're like why is the yale whiffing poofs in tuxedos on saturday night live and then they start doing the jokes they can't have something serious like that without doing jokes on them which i thought was like mm, okay but then the jokes actually were kind of funny uh, the more they got into it um and then the jingle bells with the cast which just feels like just nice and homey and everybody's together and having fun with christmas and it's, it was nice i didn't i guess i didn't mind it as much as i thought i would going into it you know what i mean i think it mm-hmm. it was it, it had power it had um uh uh nice energy and then had some good laughs and nice family feel at the end so not ba- not not bad okay well good <laughs> certainly I'm glad better that- than the psychos certainly <laughs> better than the psychos that, that's true it, it does uh it does reset the palate a little bit um well i'm glad i'm glad you found something to enjoy in it um i have nothing against the whiff and poofs but it, there was nothing about it that said this is hip or culturally relevant or just anything that I care to see. I, I get it's the Christmas episode. So you kind of get why maybe they would bring in a choir at this point, because like you said, they they had a bit more variety in their bookings back then. Um, right. Now, when they bring in a choir, it's usually because they have to do something somber because there's been a national tragedy or something like that. Like right. you, you don't get to have fun with it the way that they did here. So uh, that's interesting. My, my only thought was i liked when the cast comes out at the end and starts singing with them and i don't think that they should have tried to just layer that last little chipmunk gag on top of it i would have liked to see them all just do a a rousing chorus of of jingle bells and leave it at that so it's it this isn't a comedy piece this is just a feel-good heartwarming festive piece and i think that would have been enough i didn't i didn't need the jokes the the overlay jokes earlier were fun enough um but i just i would have liked to just see the cast a little bit more there but for maybe another verse and just have it just be festive and not shoot any further than that. Um, that's my critique, but that's all I got on whiffing. Yeah. Puffs. yeah. Now Great. before yes. they had a pre-tape about a pint sized claymation curmudgeon who menaces yes. some dude. Now this didn't air on the original broadcast on the original broadcast. There's a bit more to the good nights where Bill Murray is explaining what was happening in Poland. Uh-huh. And then on rebroadcast, which is the version that we were working from. So we kind of had to, you know, <clears throat> dissect this and reassemble it to get a sense of what it looked like when it first aired. Um, yeah, there was a bit more to the good nights. And then on repeat, because what Bill Murray said about what was happening in Poland didn't turn out to be entirely factual. They, mm. they now had enough time to fit in this pre-tape that they, that they just ran short on before. And so they make that work in the rebroadcast. Um, so it's in- worth mentioning. Yep. On the peacock, on the peacock version, yep. uh, they cut out the first uh, maybe two minutes of the psycho sketch oh. uh, for an NBC special report about what's happening in Poland. Really? Uh, so that it sets up the context of his speech uh, and the good nights. Very interesting because we're watching the rebroadcast before they thought about attempting to reassemble that. So yeah, when it went out, they cut in. So they they filmed the whole sketch, which is why we see the whole sketch in our rebroadcast version. Mm-hmm. But the live airing didn't even get the whole psycho sketch. You, they come in the middle. Uh, you miss the whole, the gunshots and everything uh, on Peacock. So okay. it doesn't even, you, you don't even get the title card of it, at home with the psychos. Okay. Um. Yeah. So it's an NBC special report to let you know. And in case anybody. Uh, doesn't know it, uh, this is the night that um, the Soviets invaded Poland mm-hmm. uh, and uh, took back um, government from the, I'm trying to remember the solidarity union. Sure. Yep. Let's go with that. <laughs> free, free solidarity <laughs> union leaders. 
so the, uh, yeah, Russia invade, invades Poland during the episode. Uh, that's what happens. If people wanted meta. Here's your, here's your meta. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, apparently because of that, this has been, you know, rejiggered a few times over throughout the years. That's interesting. Mm. Cause I hadn't seen the Peacock version cause I'm in Canada and apparently we're not allowed to see Peacock over here. Maybe someday. And we're not allowed to see full episodes here. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it is what it is, but for purists, um, this, this little pre-tape wasn't part of the show, but now in rewatch, a lot of people that are finding it probably will see this. So it's worth mentioning. Uh, did you have any great thoughts on this pre-tape? Yes, I did. It's a claymation between, um, uh, a little claymation creature and a human, mm-hmm. uh, having some sort of like roadrunner, Wiley Coyote, yeah. itchy and scratchy nonsense going on in his apartment where the, uh, claymation guy is, uh, the aggressor and the human is getting all the, uh, uh, things happen to him and i thought it was actually funnier than any mr bill i'd ever seen <laughs> sure uh, that's a hot thing really yeah uh i i loved mr bill as a kid and i it's so frustrating to watch it as an adult because <laughs> i just realize how it is nothing but punching down it's right up o'donohue's uh mr bill is right up o'donohue's lane of just like <laughs> punching down making somebody suffer violently and this was uh this was charming because it was the claymation guy doing the aggressor, the aggressive actions towards the human and the human sure. getting his foot slammed in the door or whatever it is, uh, the physical humor gag. So I thought it was very sweet and charming and funny uh, and really inventive. And um, yeah, it, it was, I liked it. Good, good on you, T. Hiddle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it was called Fracas, I think was the actual name of the piece if anyone looks it up mm-hmm. on YouTube. Um, yeah, you're right. It's a reverse Mr. Bill instead of, you know, some off screen person mutilating Mr. Bill. Uh, we get the claymation's revenge here with the fork and the shoe and the eggs and the slam in the door. Um, yeah, I, I was amused by this. I, I have nothing more brilliant than that to say other than I, I see why they'd want to have this held back in case they came up a couple minutes short. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, yeah, fun enough. And that is our rundown. Nice. Let's talk moment of the night. What do you got? Moment of the night. It's so hard. Um, uh, you know, I, um, the, the spinners was great. I love, uh, I love when Bill Murray uh, says, "What time and what do I wear?" But I think <laughs> it's this kid in the uh, in the in Mary Gross's pre-tape where she says, "I remember in uh, 78. That was Christmas. Yeah, and that to me hit home so hard. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I'm Jewish. I don't even celebrate Christmas, but that. That take was so funny to me, and I think that's the moment that hooked me for Saturday Night Live. So that's got to be my moment of the night. It's Very the, good. The moment I felt the moment I fell in love with Saturday Night Live. That it's 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 nice when we when we have a touchstone that we can. Uh, yeah. reconnect with after so long it's funny that you you brought up the black crows earlier because the very first episode of snl that i ever watched they were the musical guest in the very early oh. 90s so yeah uh, that's kind of my touchstone whenever i see that episode i remember that performance um for me i'm gonna give it to uh old muhammad ali shows up <laughs> at the desk yes. um just a, a feat of prosthetics and performance and just a clever piece end to end and mm-hmm. just a lot to like there. And, and I thought they just really knocked that out of the park for SNL to be doing that good with their prosthetic work and their, their characters and their update features this early in, mm-hmm. in the show. I forgot, you know, just how quickly they, they figured all that out. Cause the, you watch the first couple seasons and it's, you know, it's charmingly bad, <laughs> you know, the mm-hmm. costuming and the prosthetics and all that stuff. You watch the cone heads and it's just like, okay, is that paper mache? What, what, what are we doing here? Um, so 
to see this and realize, well, that's pretty much as good as what we got going on today. Um, I just respected it. I thought that was a good moment. Yeah. Best sketch. Best sketch. Well, I think my favorite performance was the spinners. Mm -hmm. If I had to like pick a, pick something from this that just, just made me feel good from start to finish nonstop good. But if we're going comedy, I'd have to go with Mary Gross's kids Christmas. Um, it's, it's, it's such pure, genuine fun. Mm-hmm. There's no one gets offended. It's not mean. It's just silly seeing kids saying adult things. So yep. great, great job. I love that piece so much. It spoke to me as a kid and continues um, uh, to be a mainstay of my blueprint for my comedy career. I love that kind of um, humor where nobody's being hurt or punched down or even punched. Nobody's getting punched except for sure. Christmas, which can, which can take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, just very intriguing to hear how your comedy sensibilities were forged in the fires of this episode. Um, yeah. yeah, that that was the strongest update piece, or you know, definitely right up there with uh, SNL Sports. Um, I'm going with um, the bum that learns a lesson in trickle down mm-hmm. economics through a, a festive Christmas jingle. Uh, just smart and yes. well performed, and yes just uh, as an end to end win of a sketch that is just clever and charming and makes its point without um, making you feel like they were so obsessed with making the point that they lost track of the joke. Like it just feels like they balance both of those competing needs perfectly. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a really strong piece. Stellar sketch and uh, honorable mention to Tom Snyder. I thought it was also really good. Yep. Yeah. That was fun. All right. MVP. MVP. Obviously Bill Murray. I think Bill Murray uh, is just doing half court shots every single every single sketch. He's whatever the opposite of phoning it in is. He is dialed in. Yeah, he's dialed in. He is committed. He's taking throwaway moments and making them like completely wonderful moments. He's throwing his heart and soul into this episode. Um, it's probably one of his best hosting um uh, outputs uh that he's done. And uh, I start to end. It's Bill Murray's episode. And he owns it. Yeah. For all those reasons. And one other reason, I, I think Bill Murray's a, a great choice. I see him acting against his brother in this episode. And it occurs to me, that's right. It's his brother. Of, of course, yeah. he's going to rally. Like he's going to make sure that his brother's show is in as much as he can help make, get yes. his brother's show over. He's going to come and rally and, and do his job. It's his brother. Yeah. You know, I, how can you not love Bill Murray? So for everything that you said, and just because it just seems so obvious that he wasn't there because he had anything to pitch or he was getting anything out of it other than just going to spend some time with my brother and this crew, and we're just going to put on the best show we possibly can, and I'm just going to throw myself into it. And that, to me, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But not enough to save Michael O'Donoghue's job. No, no, not quite. I w- I would give an honorable mention to Joe Piscopo. I think he did some solid work tonight as well. But uh, Bill Murray, he's the man. One of my favorites of all time. Yeah. On a scale of classic, mm. great, decent, weak, or train wreck. How would you rate this episode? I think we're at a solid great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, there's just enough scenes in there that are stinkers to not be a classic. <laughs> Sure. Um, but yeah, uh, take out the psychos, take out the, um, uh, tales, uh, from, uh, their big uh, opener, the sprawling opener, their big opener and everything else, leave everything else in there. And you got a solid, solid episode. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to harp on it. I feel exactly the same. 
I think yep. solid musical act, which, you know, always just helps buoy an episode solid update as much as Brian Doyle Murray just may never have found his, his stride at the desk. Some really fun features. Those are tent poles for any good episode. And I think those were in place. And then you had some fun stuff and, and a few brilliant things throughout the night, along yep. with a few things that, you know, are just genuinely hard to watch, but the ones that got over, some of them got over big time. So, um, yeah, yeah I'm right there with you. There's, there's some greatness here especially during this season when, you know, people are just down on the show for them to turn out some stuff that stands the test of time. I'll, I'll applaud that between season six, seven and eight. This is definitely a standout and mm-hmm. probably the best of the bunch. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, I, I think we did justice to that show. Do you have any brilliant thoughts to close out our discussion? Uh, no, I think we hit upon everything that I wanted to talk about, you know, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I think I grew up when I first got into comedy. I really enjoyed Michael O'Donohue and I read his uh, autobiography, and really fun. and then as I got older and more mature, I just realized, God, he's so mean. Uh, for the sake of, for the sake of being mean, I just there's so many other ways to make people laugh. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just just a fascinating. If you're a fan of Science Live and the lore of Science Live, this is definitely uh, one of those episodes to go back and check out. So highly recommended. All right. Um, so we'll leave it there. Why don't you tell people where they can find uh, Cold Town's activities as well as Sketchfest? Yes, you can find uh, me at Dave Buckman uh, on uh, Twitter or Instagram. You can check out at Cold Town, C-O-L-D-T-O-W-N-E Theater uh, at, at the same channels as well. Uh, we have a Patreon. You can please feel free to uh, contribute. We also have a Twitch channel where we're doing shows Wednesdays and Fridays and Saturdays and Twitch TV uh slash cold town tv as well uh as austin sketch fest coming up april 20th through the 24th on that twitch channel where we will have meg stalter atsuka akatsuka and the alchemy live podcast with craig kakowski and kevin pollock so please tune in for that throw us some money as a donation it's free to stream so uh hope to see you on twitch very good yeah i hope everyone checks it out well, Dave, uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, I love being able to have you up for what has become an annual tradition where we chat vintage SNL. Um, I always appreciate your insights and the, the fact that these episodes are so close to your heart. There's a, there's a passion there that you bring. And uh, yeah, these are always a joy. These are some of the funnest episodes um, for me to participate in. And that's actually why I kicked Catherine out this week. I wanted to steer the ship and just kind of, <laughs> you know, do, do what we do. And um, you didn't disappoint. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I hope our audience enjoyed having you back and um with that said thanks again thank you for having me i have such a good time with you excellent all right that's a cast thanks to my guest dave buckman you can connect with dave on twitter at dave buckman and thanks as well to our most generous patrons sam bowers neil weinstein justin gardner carissa eubank grace kogan and brian clark If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on YouTube or wherever better podcasts can be found. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon when SNL returns for its spring run. But until then, this has been episode number 131 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow.